So I uh, used to work for the Salvation Army. And uh, the Salvation Army is this multinational nonprofit corporation that has thousands and thousands of employees. And those thousands and thousands of employees have computers. When I started working for the Salvation Army in 2009, everyone's computer was running something called Windows XP. If you're familiar with computers, it's like the high-end OS back in 2001. And so they were like eight years behind. And it wasn't until like 2015 that they finally upgraded to Windows 7, which was also like eight years old at the time, so they're still behind. But the thing is, if you've ever had to change software like that at work or even at home, it's pretty frustrating because you got to learn something new and, and you have to, there's, there's different buttons in different places and um, the, for a big organization, they have custom things that they've written for this software and now they have to change them for this other software because it's really the basis of your whole organization's uh, computer system. And they knew for a long time, I was friends with one of the IT guys, they knew for a long time that they needed to upgrade. But they just couldn't pull the trigger because it was going to be so hard. It was going to be so weird. It was going to be so different. And I think that's a lot like what worldviews are for us. A worldview is, is just what it sounds like. It's a way to view the world. We get, everybody has one. It's, it's this kind of overarching theme, this foundation that we build our lives on. And we get it maybe from religion. Maybe we've grown up amongst a community of people with a worldview. Maybe we get it from philosophy. We read books in college from really smart dead guys and they inspire us to live a certain way. Maybe we just make it up on our own as we go. Just, we live life and we just kind of do what we do and we pick up stuff along the way. But everybody kind of has a way that they think the world works, even if they wouldn't articulate it that way. And sometimes you run across a better worldview, a better way of explaining the world, but it's still, it's hard to switch. It's hard to, you've been doing it the way you've been doing it for so long that even if you can see that like, yeah, this way would be better, man, I don't know if I can take the plunge. I don't know if I can do that. And so what I want to do today is, is talk about what, what's, can, what's called the Christian worldview, which comes from the pages of this, this book um, that we call the Bible. And I would argue that, that the way that the Christian faith explains the world is a better way to look at life than the alternatives. But for a lot of us, it's it's just hard to pull the trigger on because maybe we've been doing it the way we've been doing it for so long. Maybe there's, there's going to be some things in this new worldview that are different, some things we have to learn that we have to grow in. And it just makes it hard to switch. But I, I would say to, this morning that, that it's important to switch because if you don't, well, there's consequences to that. So we're going to be in the Bible this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. Um, and we're going to be on page 1020. And um, the Bible, we call the, this book, the Bible, that's, that's a Greek word, Bible. It means book. That's not very helpful. Um, 
The Bible is actually a collection of books. It's a collection of, of histories and poetry and letters. And this particular book called 1 Corinthians is, is a letter written to a church in Greece. Uh, this church is called Corinth, it's, or the, the city that it's in is called Corinth. And it's written by a, a man, an early follower of Jesus named Paul. And Paul is this guy that has fully bought into this way of looking at the world through faith in Christ, through Jesus. And uh, he goes, he's so bought into it that he gives up his former life and he goes all the way around the Mediterranean world telling people about Jesus. And he, he, he plants churches. He creates communities of people that are following Jesus all around the Mediterranean. And one of these places, and this is in the city of Corinth, and at some point along the way, they have some questions about what it means to follow Jesus, and they write him a letter. And we don't have that letter, but we have Paul's response to that letter, and that's what 1 Corinthians is. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, it's a really practical letter. It's a really useful letter. Paul talks about pride. He talks about relational strife. He talks about sexual ethics. He talks about how to gather in the church. But then in chapter 15, almost at the very end, he starts talking about something called the resurrection of the dead. And you might think, well, that seems kind of weird. Everything was going really well, Paul. You were making a lot of sense. You were really practical. And then all of a sudden, you have to switch at the end to this weird idea that somebody was dead and now they're alive again. And that's what, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who was physically dead, specifically Jesus, and was raised back to life. And if, if you're not a Christian this morning, or, or if, if you're a skeptical person by nature, that seems a little odd. That doesn't happen every day. But he spends a lot of time on it. Um, and I've got, if you're a note taker, I've got four observations I want to make about what he says about the resurrection of the dead. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So according to Paul, rather than just being something kind of tagged on to think about some esoteric idea, Paul says, this resurrection, this life from the dead that Jesus experienced, he says this is what the Corinthians have taken their stand on. This is like the centerpiece of their entire belief system. The way they look at the world, the way they treat other people, the way they uh, view everything comes back down to this idea. And so the first thing I want to draw your attention to about the resurrection is that it really happened. 
Jesus really rose from the dead. Paul says that Jesus died and that he was buried. And, and this is pretty well established. If you're, if you're a New Testament historian, if you deal with that time in history, you pretty much agree with Paul here. Now, you can find, you can go on YouTube. You can, anybody can get a YouTube channel. Did you know that? And you can go on YouTube and you can find somebody who says, Jesus is not real. He's a myth. He never existed. But nobody that really knows what they're talking about believes that. Even if you're not a Christian and you study the ancient world for a living, like you have a PhD and a bunch of other letters behind your name, you're going to say, yeah, like there was this man named Jesus of Nazareth who walked around the countryside of Judea and gathered followers, mostly peasants, and started a movement. And that he was, he made enemies of the Jewish religious establishment and he was killed at their request by the Roman government. He was crucified, uh, murdered uh, by a, a torture device that Rome used called crucifixion and that he was buried. That's pretty undeniable. But then Paul says something else. He says that on the third day, he was raised. And then he started appearing to people. This guy Cephas, we also call Cephas Peter in the New Testament. And then the 12, the 12 men that were Jesus' closest followers. And then he showed up to over 500 people at once at this large meeting and then he showed up to James. James was his half-brother. And then to some other apostles. And then Paul says, last of all, he, I, he showed up to me. And another thing that historians would say is true about this, even non-Christian historians who, who don't believe in the resurrection, they, would, they wouldn't affirm that Jesus rose from the dead, but they would say that all of these people believed that they saw Jesus. It used to be common to say like, well, everybody in the early church was just lying. They were just making stuff up. And that's really hard to believe because there were a lot of them and they all had the same story. They all saw him in groups at once. And so most historians, whether, or not, whether you're Christian or not, would say, yeah, the early disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Another thing that, that Paul doesn't specifically mention, but we know from other accounts of Jesus' life, is that there was no body in the tomb. Paul says that he was buried. The location of his tomb was known, but there was no body in it. And that's significant because as the early church began to say, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead, those same people that were mad at Jesus were mad at them, the leaders of the Jewish faith. And if they could just go to Jesus' tomb and be like, look, no, he's still dead. He's in there. Here's his body. That would have put an end to the whole thing right there. But they didn't do that because they didn't have it. It was gone. And then the last thing that's pretty well established, and, it's, it, and you can see it in Paul's life, is that Jesus' people, Jesus' followers, went around the world and began to turn it upside down. They began to go from town to town proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, he's king, he's risen from the dead, and you need to drop everything and follow him. And Christianity spread. And then Rome, 
started to dislike this a little bit because according to Roman custom and Roman law, Caesar was Lord. There was even this thing where just kind of like as a citizenship test, every year Roman citizens had to go to the temple of Caesar and burn some incense, swearing their allegiance to Caesar. And the Christians were like, no, we're not doing that. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And there's stories where the Roman officials are like, no, really, I mean, we don't even care. You don't have to believe that Caesar is Lord. You just have to burn the incense. It's really not a big deal. Just do it, get it over with. It's just once a year. It's like filing your taxes, and then you can go back to worshiping Jesus. And the Christians were like, no, we're not going to do it. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so then the Roman government said, well, then this is really dumb. We're going to have to kill you. And they said, fine. And thousands and thousands of Christians were murdered because they wouldn't back down. That Jesus rose from the dead. So all of this, and there's more, but this is kind of a bare minimum. The most straightforward explanation for this is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. There's a philosopher named Anthony Flew. He was an atheist. And he had a debate with a a Christian scholar named Gary Habermas in 1987. And after that debate, Flew said this. He said, you try to discover what actually happened, talking about history, guided by your best evidence as to what was probable or improbable, possible or impossible. And the miracles are things that you take to just be impossible. And the reason he said that was because in this debate with Habermas, Habermas produced all of this evidence that makes perfect sense if Jesus rose from the dead. And Flew didn't come back and say, no, your evidence is wrong. No, your reasoning is wrong. He didn't say any of that. He just said, well, I can't possibly believe in miracles. I don't care how good your arguments are. I've decided beforehand that I'm not going to believe in the miraculous. Several decades later, Anthony Flew again, a a philosopher of religion, continued to study, and he came to the position that he believed that the universe is just too special for there not to be a God. He wrote a book about his conversion to theism. He never became a Christian, but he decided, you know, there must be a God to create this world that we live in. And in 2007, he said, today, I would say the claim concerning the resurrection is more impressive than any by the religious competition. He still doesn't believe the gospel, but he doesn't have any good arguments against it. Because the thing that makes the most sense is that Jesus really rose from the dead, even if that doesn't usually happen. It explains the historical evidence, it explains the witnesses, it explains the empty tomb, and it explains how Christianity exploded in the first century, even in the midst of persecution. So Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection really happened. The second thing is the resurrection makes Christianity matter. Look at verse 17 of chapter 15. Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For, we have put our, for if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. 
So Paul's very clear about this. He says, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, Christians are idiots. Christians are fools. There is a, there's a kind of faith in our world today that, that would claim Christianity, but say like, you know, all that crazy stuff that happened in the Bible, we don't have to believe that. We can just believe that, you know, we should love people and be nice. We should love people and we should be nice. But Paul says like, there's no reason to follow Jesus if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He says, you are still in your sins. So the Bible talks a lot about sin. Sin is this idea that that there is brokenness inside us. There is something that is messed up in you. And we all know this when we're alone, when we reflect on ourselves. We don't lead with it. Hi, my name is Zach. Uh, I'm a liar and a wretch. I'm gonna gonna let you down. I'm probably gonna talk about you behind your back. Um, Sorry. Like we 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 don't do that. But deep down, we know like there's things in our hearts and our souls that have gone just a little bit wrong. And sometimes we're even shocked how wicked and evil the things are that we think, the things that we act out on. And this sin in each one of us, it spreads because we build cities and societies and governments and, and then it gets bigger and bigger and it just covers the world, and we look out and we see injustice and we go, why is that happening? But deep down, we know why it's happening because we are all broken inside. Currently, our culture sees it as a badge of honor to um, rejoice in whatever state we find ourselves in. I have this set of twisted desires that you have to respect or you're a bigot. My Myers-Briggs personality test says I am naturally inclined to be a jerk. You have to deal with it. No, you don't. (laughs) It's, It's sin. It's brokenness. It doesn't belong there. And this is where religion comes in. Religion is 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 a way to figure out how to deal with sin. Sometimes we, we use religion to ignore sin. Like, we just don't talk about that. Sometimes we indulge in it. We say, no, it's not sin. It's actually good, and we celebrate it. Sometimes we work really hard to get rid of it. I'm going to scale that mountain or follow these steps or beat myself down to pay for it. But Paul doesn't say anything about that. Paul says, that Jesus takes care of the sin problem. Jesus' resurrection is what takes care of our sin. And that brings us to the third observation, is that Jesus' resurrection conquers death. Look at verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul is alluding to this, this creation story in the Bible. The Bible is this overarching story of how the world works, and it starts with God making the world perfect and putting some people in the world, people named Adam and Eve, and they live in this perfect 
relationship with God. Their job is to just fill the earth, to subdue it, to make it better with God's help. But they decide, you know what, maybe, maybe they're smarter than God. Maybe they know a little bit better than God does. And they decide to step away from God's perfect love and rule over their lives and kind of do their own thing. And God says, if you're going to do that, you can't be a part of my garden anymore. You can't be a part, you can't be in my presence anymore. You have to leave. And in that story, there's a tree called the tree of life. And, and it uh, symbolically illustrates that our life comes from God. God is the giver of life. And, and we get kicked out from the presence of the tree and we die. See, sin, that brokenness, has a trajectory and it leads to death. Death isn't a natural phenomenon. It's a consequence of sin. And just like Adam and Eve, we play this out in our own lives every single time we go, you know what, God, I don't really think the way you want to do things is best for me. I'm just going to do my own thing. Every time we see the darkness inside of us, instead of fleeing from it, we indulge it. Or even when, when we recognize the brokenness and go, you know what, God, I'm going to fix it myself. I don't, I don't need to lean on you. I don't need what you have for me. I'm just going to go take care of this on my own. As we reject God, it brings us closer and closer to death. And death is a great enemy. Verse 56 of this chapter says, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death, the part that gets you is sin. You ever, you ever see like there's a bee in your house and you freak out because bees are scary, but then you realize it's one of those flies that just looks like a bee and doesn't have a stinger. It's not really scary anymore. There's nothing I can do to you anymore. It's just pretending. The sting of death is sin. See, Jesus conquers sin and death by taking our sins, all of the brokenness that we have done, all of the broken things that have been done to us, all the shame, all of the wickedness, and he takes it on himself and he dies for them in our place. But see, Jesus wasn't a sinner. He, he, he was a perfect person. He was God, the Son. And so death can't hold him down. Death can't conquer him. And so he rises from the dead to new life, and he gives that to the people that believe in him. So the resurrection is something that really happened. Number two, it, it makes the Christian way of looking at the world matter. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus conquers death. It saves us from death. And number four, it gives energy 
to the life of the follower of Jesus. Look at verse 58. Paul says, therefore, because of the last 57 verses that we didn't read all of, because of this whole argument that Paul makes about resurrection, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, Jesus' resurrection gives the one who would follow him the power to live a life that is different, that is new. It is, it is common in, to, in the church to talk about, you know, become a Christian, Jesus will forgive you for your sins, and you'll get to go to heaven when you die. And that's pretty true, but it's not the whole story. Jesus offers us eternal life right now, today. The resurrection power of Christ is for today. And so if you're a Christian this morning, Jesus' resurrection gives us the ability and the power to live a life that is radically generous, just like he was, others-centered, just like him. It gives us the power to look out at the world and go, there's brokenness, there's pain, there's suffering out there. How can I be a part of fixing that in Jesus' name? These are the marks of the Christian. Paul, in a different place, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The the one who follows Jesus has the Spirit of God living inside them, and, and the result of that is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness. These are things that will supernaturally fall, flow out of you as you walk with Christ. But if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're living your life just a different way, maybe you've just kind of figured it out as you've gone over the course of your life, done your best. Maybe you've been involved in another faith tradition that that has completely different views on the way the world works. I would ask, how's it going? Is it working? Or are you like the Salvation Army running Windows XP like 10 years after it's obsolete? Like there's just something that's not clicking here. Is there something missing? See, Jesus lived the life that we can't live. He lived perfectly. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. And he offers you his perfect life in exchange for your brokenness, for your sin. And the terms of that deal are simple. He says, follow me. He offers himself graciously, lovingly. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 15. Paul says, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, I preach to you, which you received. What do you do to receive? Well, I'm, I'm doing like eight-mile runs every day because I'm training to receive something. I got, my, I got my receiving tools. No, you don't do any of that. You just receive. There's no preparation for that. There's no 
training for that. There's no like extra steps to go through. If somebody gives you a gift, you take it. And that's the gift of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins so that you don't have to and that you can live a life that is new today. But just like that software upgrade that I was talking about, it's not all easy. It can be a challenge. Jesus says things like, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Pick up your cross. That's, his audience would have known that's like, that's a statement about death. It's, it's like us saying, pick up your electric chair. It's very clearly Jesus saying, the life that I have for you is the best, but it might look a little different than you thought it would. He says things like, love your enemies. Nobody wants to do that. He says, pray for those that persecute you. Eugene Peterson, in his um, commentary on the Bible in one section, uh, phrases something that Paul says like this, Anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. That's a pretty awesome sales pitch. But see, the worldview of the Christian, the the life of following Jesus is better, but it's not necessarily easier. G.K. Chesterton, who was a philosopher in Britain in the last century, said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And so whether you've just kind of been doing your own thing your whole life or whether you were kind of a part of a church at one point and kind of believed some things and you fell away or, or whether like it's just been a really rough week for you, Christian, doesn't matter where you're at, the call every single day is to follow Jesus, to get back up by grace because he loves you and walk. The Bible talks a lot about faith. The church talks a lot about faith. And and in our culture, we have messed up the understanding of what faith means. We think of faith as There's something that's probably not going to happen, but I'm going to hope that it happens anyway. I have faith that this lottery ticket is a winner. That's not what faith means in the Bible. The, The way that the authors of Scripture would have used the word faith is more like allegiance. So when it says have faith, In Jesus, it means have allegiance to Jesus. Swear your allegiance to Christ. Just like the Christians who said, I'm not going to burn incense to Caesar because Jesus is Lord. This is the call to walk a different way with Jesus. And so as we continue to celebrate the power of Christ's resurrection... We're going to sing some more. One of, the, one of the reasons we sing, we're commanded to sing in Scripture, but one of the reasons we sing is to remind each other of who God is and what He's done. And we're also going to share communion together. Um, the night that Jesus was betrayed, before He was killed, this would have been 
this week on Thursday. He had dinner with some of his best friends. And he, he took the bread of the dinner and he broke it and he passed around and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he passed the cup of wine around the table and he said, this, drink from this, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. A covenant is, is like a two-way agreement, like a marriage that is lifelong. He said, this is the new covenant. This is the way that I am going to interact with my people. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for their sins and I'm going to offer them new life from me. And so we celebrate that this morning. And and so as we sing, the communion table will be open. There's juice and wine that you're free to take from as your conscience dictates. And if you're sitting here this morning and and you're just like, you know what, I, I have been living under the wrong worldview. I've been doing things my own way. I haven't really been paying attention to who Jesus is. Maybe I've I've never even thought about following Christ. And you're thinking, you know, maybe, maybe it is better to follow Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe at one time you were really solid following Jesus and you've just kind of fallen away. You've kind of drifted into other things. Today is the day to come back to that, to recommit to that, to commit to that for the first time, to say, the way I'm living my life isn't working. I need something better. Jesus is better because Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus is Lord. So if that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something because the the thing about living as a follower of Christ is that Jesus didn't set us up to do it by ourselves. He set us up to do it with each other. He, He made this community of people to seek him together because we all bring something to the table. He's given us all gifts to help each other along the way. And so there's a connect card in the pew in front of you. And so if, if you are interested in following Jesus, I want you to fill it out. And I want you to put it in the box in the back before you leave. And I want you to put your name on it. And I want you to put your phone number on it and your email address and your physical address because I'm going to hunt you down. No, because we want to send you a gift. We want to send you a book that talks a little bit more about the gospel. And we'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because if you're like, I want to follow Jesus, and then we never see you again, I mean, we'd like to be more helpful than that. Because I need help. All of us need help. We all need brothers and sisters to run this race with. So nothing scary this morning. We're not going to make you come up front or stand up, but let us know. Let us know that you want to live your life differently. And if you're kind of like, I don't know that this is true, but I'd like, I have some questions, fill out a connection card. Somebody would love to help answer your questions. 
We want this to be a place where those kind of questions can be answered. If you, if you heard what I said and you're like, you're full of it, that's totally wrong, let's talk. Questions aren't off limits. But as we close, consider following Christ because Jesus is better. And if you're here today and you would say, yeah, I am a Christian, then rejoice in the fact that Jesus is better, no matter what's been going on lately. And I know there's probably been some rotten stuff going on lately, because there always is. But Jesus conquers death and gives us new life and takes away our sin and provides us with salvation. Let's pray. God, thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you that we don't have to live the way that we have always lived. We don't have to just figure it out as we go. We don't have to work to earn goodness. We don't have to deal with the broken, the dark, the wicked in our hearts alone. And God, I pray as we, as we sing, as we remember your death on the cross for our sins, your resurrection to new life, God, I just pray that you would speak to everyone here wherever we're at. God, if there's those that, that don't know you, that don't follow you, and they're, and they're frustrated with the way life is, and I pray that you would give them the courage to say, yeah, I'm going to do something different. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I want to follow him. And for those that are your people and maybe have been for a long time, God, I just pray that this would be a day of rejoicing, celebration, as we remember the most important thing, like Paul says, that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose on the third day. God, help this truth just empower us to be on the mission you have us on in this city, to love each other, to love our families, our friends, to be lights in our workplaces, to just see the world through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.